Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colourgraph. I'm Artemis Irvin, and in today's episode, we're travelling back to a dark and turbulent year in the life of one of Britain's most controversial literary geniuses, D.H. Lawrence. Reading him today is like tuning into a radio station whose frequency keeps changing. That's how my guest today, Frances Wilson, describes D.H. Lawrence, the subject of her latest biography. Lawrence's legacy in English literature is difficult and complex. In his life, Lawrence's work was censored by the state for obscenity, and he was often patronised by his literary contemporaries who struggled to see past his working-class background. Since his death, his work has passed from being an essential part of the school curriculum to being shunned for being offensive and misogynistic. But in fact, these polarities reflect the contradictions in Lawrence's character that my guest today, Frances Wilson, outlines in her brilliant new biography of him, Burning Man, The Ascent of D.H. Lawrence. Frances Wilson is an author, academic and critic. Her previous biographies have included The Ballad of Dorothy Wordsworth, which won the British Academy's Rosemary Crawshay Prize, and Guilty Thing, A Life of Thomas de Quincey, which was named Book of the Year in The Guardian, TLS, The Spectator and The Telegraph. So, as you can imagine, it was a real pleasure to speak to Francis just last week. Well, Francis, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. It's such a pleasure to have you on this incredibly wet and windy day, but here we are. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for having me. Great. Well, before we get started and do our time travelling back to your chosen year, I just wanted to talk to you a bit about the art of the biography, because you've written several award-winning biographies, and I really wanted to know what attracts you to the genre. Gosh, it's a really hard question to answer, because I've always been drawn to the genre. I remember the first biography I read as a child, it was a biography of the, um, of the, um, the actress and movie star Vivian Lee being completely gripped by um, not the story of her life, but the genre, because it was both true and not true. And that combination of um, the chaos and pain of a real life, but structured around a narrative, absolutely fascinated me and I thought my god life can be organized life can be thought about in terms of kind of a narrative arc you know you, it doesn't have to be as um, as meaningless as it seems when you're living it so I, I, I think that's what I realized then and that's what I've been interested in ever since. And that kind of was, leads me on to my next question about biographies because I think I often think about with history it's such a challenge to reconstruct the past. It sounds like such an obvious thing to say, but we just lose Mm. so much information over the years. And reconstructing a whole life from the past feels like a huge mammoth task. How do you go about doing that? And how do you you ensure that you feel like you've done a good job and you've you've, um, recreated an an accurate portrayal of what that person was like? It's an incredibly difficult thing. And it it frustrates me that um, biographers sometimes don't take this seriously enough. They don't see themselves as um, in the business of um, historical reconstruction. They just sort of write down 
a load of stuff and hope that the, the reader is going to be imaginative about it. I think one of the things I do is complete absorption, like method acting. You know, I completely absorb myself in the person I am writing about. I read everything. Writing about Lawrence, I read everything that Lawrence read. I went everywhere that Lawrence went. Now, I read everything else that was written at the time that Lawrence was writing, so I could get a sense of the world as he recognised it, reading the newspapers that reported the daily news that he'd have absorbed. So rather than kind of looking back with the kind of, you know, with the condescension of history, thinking about Lawrence's life, knowing as we do now how the First World War ended and what would happen later on in the century, all the things that he kind of predicted but died and so didn't see. I just tried to put myself in a position where I saw the world as Lawrence saw it. That's absolutely that's absolutely fascinating. I love that idea of totally immersing yourself in that. I mean, yeah, reading daily newspapers and things. Do you ever come across anything bizarre that you wouldn't you wouldn't have ever found any other way? Well, oh God, so so many things. I mean, there was something that It's completely fascinating and it completely fascinated me. It was reported in the local press that his uncle, who lived in the same mining village as the Lawrences did, his uncle killed his own son. Lawrence doesn't mention it anywhere. No one mentions it. But there it is, sitting in the the local press. Wow. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) What? Yeah, how how awful! How it's such a violent thing to have happened. And it puts the violence. I mean, Lawrence did come from a um, a violent home. Um, his parents had fights. I mean, their marriage was a fight. There wasn't ever a moment when they weren't fighting. And Lawrence went on to become a kind of violent husband with an equally violent wife. I mean, he and Lawrence and his wife Frida were endlessly wrestling on the ground with Lawrence tiny and thin and and Frida kind of huge and robust but if you read closely in Lawrence's novels you can see there's violence everywhere there's violence everywhere characters are always trying to kill one another and this was not this is not an exaggeration for him this was the reality of of family life in Eastwood Mm. yeah so to sort of go on a bit to the man himself who whose life you've been immersed in whilst writing this biography, we're obviously going to talk about him a lot in this interview, but could you give us a kind of overview? Who who was D.H. Lawrence? What kind of man was he? And um, what happened in his life up until the year that we're going to visit today? OK, well, you have no idea how complex that question is that you've just asked. It took me so long to figure out who D.H. Lawrence was, and I'm still figuring it out now. I think D.H. Lawrence was two people. I think there was self one and there was self two. And Lawrence described quite often in his letters and in his own writing two selves, having two selves, and he thought that everyone had two selves, which I don't think they do. The first self Lawrence described was what he called a herd self, the person with the herd mentality, a kind of the ranter and the raver and the aggressive person and the person who stands on his soapbox and kind of shouts about the world. And the second self was a quiet, introverted self who, as Lawrence put it very beautifully, was most of the time puzzled. Now, Lawrence was part self one, the herd self, and part the quiet self. And we feel this in his writing. And 
A-grade mansplainer. And this mansplaining self, self one, the herd self, appears in like Women in Love and the later novels where he drives us all crazy with his kind of Laurentian heroes speaking through their tannoy system about how the world works. But self two was the Lawrence who writes about beautifully about um, birds and beasts and flowers and tenderly about love and sex and writes about women from the inside. And Lawrence's friends knew both self one and self two, and they never knew which self they were going to get. Now, what I noticed as I was working on Lawrence's life was that um, the split occurred when he was about 19. And his closest friend at the time, um, a woman called Jessie Chambers, who is the model for Miriam in Sons and Lovers, described it happening. She said that um, Lawrence suddenly kind of cracked into two beings, age 19. And what she had known, the person she had known before, had been a magical, magical figure, like a sort of sprite. She said someone who brought nothing but joy to her life and the life of her family, who was, when he walked into a room, the temperature changed. Now, everyone was pleased to see him. And then something happened and this other self emerged who was bitter and angry and ranting. And he lived between these two characters. I don't think that um, he had bipolar disorder. I think this was, I don't think this was clinical. I think this was something that um, it's very, very hard to explain, but I think it's, it was damage inflicted on him from childhood where he was always split between um, whether to be on the side of his mother who was all mind and aspirational or his father who was um, all body and a coal miner and, and Lawrence was always torn between which parent to identify with so I think in the end he just found it easier to just become two people and you follow so I was writing a double life you know I was following Lawrence one and Lawrence two and uh, no one in Lawrence's family had been properly educated and Lawrence was half educated but the half education he had was a pretty good one his father was semi semi-literate his mother had notions for her son so his mother um thought you know I I do not want any of my sons to go down the mine I want my sons to have um you know, to ascend is how she saw it. Upper, upper, upper. She wanted, this is what she said, she, wants her, she wanted her sons to rise through the world. And so in a sense, I mean, she was a kind of shocking woman in many ways. She was kind of monstrous, really, as um, Lawrence tried to resist how monstrous she was. But I think we can see in Sons and Lovers how monstrous and controlling and damaging she was. But she was also a superb mother. She ensured that uh, that her young son got as about, a, about as good an education as a child could get and Lawrence's education was the education of a, of a middle class boy he got a scholarship to the grammar school local grammar school and there he got a classical education and so it wasn't I mean he was treated when he emerged into um, Edwardian um, literary society he was treated as a kind of wonderkind how on earth did a, a child of a coal miner um, have so much knowledge have, have done so much reading well because he had a good education that's why and that was his that was his mother they had a piano in the cottage so it's a very unusual miner's house had a piano and lots of books and they listened to you know they they sang operettas around the piano but at the same time as Lawrence was getting this this good education he was um becoming more and more and more separated of course from his family and everyone's childhood is about carving your identity away from your parents but 
for Lawrence, this was completely extreme. He was obviously joining another class entirely and he lost contact with his father, you know, emotionally and and practically. His father had no idea. He thought his son was a great sissy. And Lawrence's mother didn't live to see his success. But the, 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 the damage that his mother inflicted on him emotionally can be seen in the, the rest of Lawrence's life. Mm. And um, you mentioned that you can see that from, from reading Sons and Lovers. And that is just one of the things, a kind of general question that I wanted to ask you before we head to your chosen year. Because in the book you talk about, um, in your introduction, you say, I'm, I am unable to distinguish between Lawrence's art and Lawrence's life. Mm. And um, obviously that's not that I... I was sort of assuming when I was reading that that's not always the case with any writer or artist. It's mm. not always the case that their life and their art are that intertwined, but it is the yes. case in Lawrence's. I found it to be the case, yes, that um, Lawrence was passionately interested in how to live and he saw himself as a piece of art. I mean, he talked about art for my sake. He saw himself as, um, saw himself as a semi-divine figure. He had identified profoundly with Christ, for example, and was always talking about himself as a, a, a Christ-like figure, someone who had been unjustly treated and in the end crucified. He started to look more and more and more Christ-like as well. I mean, people did think that he looked like Jesus. He also identified at a later point in his life with Pan, you know, who was kind of half, um, half, half man, half God. And so Lawrence saw himself as, um, as, someone who was moving through a world very much of his own imaginative creating. And I thought that he, uh, that he put so much care into living. He put as much care into living as he put into writing. And he wasn't one of these writers who make a, a big deal of writing and kind of bully everyone in the household. You know, I'm writing silence. You know, Lawrence did all the housework. He cooked all the food, which he had planted and grown himself. You know, he washed all the floors, he painted all the walls, he hand sewed all the curtains. And in the afternoon, he did a bit of writing. And the writing he saw is completely equivalent in value to the hemming of curtains and the washing of floors. And I love that about him because he was the son of a working man. You know, he was never going to value one kind of work over another. Mm. Well, you've given us such a wonderful and vivid depiction of him already. Um, I think it's just about time for us to travel to the to the year you'd like to travel back in time to. So would you like to tell us what year that is? Yes, this is, I want to travel back in time to 1915. And tell us a bit about um, where Lawrence is in his life in 1915, um, without perhaps giving away too much of what we're going to talk about in our three chosen scenes. But how old is he and... Um, yeah, where, where is he in his life at this point? OK, Lawrence is 30. He turns 30 in uh, 1915 and he's living in London. And it's obviously the first year, the first year of, of the war. The war's been going on for um, a year and um, a couple of months when in my, fir in my first scene. And Lawrence has been married for, um, married for a short time, married for just over a year. But he's been with the woman he was going to marry for three years. So let's uh, let's get into it. I'm excited. What is the first scene that you'd like to visit in 1915? OK, the first scene is um, it's November 1915 and it's Bow Street Magistrates Court where Lawrence's third novel, The Rainbow, is uh, tried for obscenity and found guilty 
and the remaining 1,011 copies are burnt by a hangman outside the Royal Exchange. Lawrence isn't present at Bow Street Magistrates Court and he's not present when his book is burnt either, but obviously he knows, he knows what's going on. And what happens, the, the appalling horror of this act, totally changes the direction of his writing and it changes his character. He had um, assumed before now that he was going to write books which people were going to read and enjoy and learn from. He had no idea that by writing books he was going to be turned into an enemy of the state. And when the rainbow was banned and burnt, Lawrence decided, as he put it quite wonderfully, that um, he was now going to be a literary outlaw. He said that from now on I'm going to um, stand outside the herd and throw bombs into it. So from now on he was going to um, he was going to write entirely to provoke. If his beautiful, he called it his big and beautiful book, The Rainbow, could be censored for effectively nothing. I mean, there was, as the magistrates, as the prosecutors conceded, there was nothing obscene. They said, all right, so there's not, there's no obscene language in this book and there are no obscene scenes in this book. But the whole thing is still a mass of obscenity. And the only, and what, the only things that they could possibly draw on as being obscene were a scene in which the, a young mother, Anna Brangwyn, is dancing naked while she's pregnant. She's dancing naked before the Lord, as David did before the Lord in, um, in the Bible. She's dancing naked pregnant, which is a very, very powerful and beautiful scene. I mean, you, know, you don't get naked pregnant women in literature. You certainly didn't get them before Lawrence. And they thought that was potentially blasphemous. You know, could be, could be blasphemous. And then the other scene that um, they might have been um, iffy about was when Anna's daughter, the daughter she's pregnant with when she dances naked, grows up and has um, an affair with her female school teacher. And they go naked swimming together and then um, spend a night together. But of course, lesbianism wasn't against the law and it wasn't phallocentric, as they, Lawrence was accused of being phallocentric. There was a notable absence of fallacies from both of those scenes. And so the only conclusion we can come to is that the rainbow was censored because of Lawrence himself, because he was um, a working class upstart with a German wife. And so his wife was an enemy of the country and Lawrence had made it absolutely plain that he um, did not support this war. He wasn't a pacifist. He believed passionately in violence. But he didn't support this war. He thought this war was nonsensical. And so this is why he was erased in this way. So it was a, ter it was a terrible, terrible time for Lawrence. And how common was it at the time for books to be censored or banned in this way? There's something quite medieval about the copies being burnt by a hangman. It's quite, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. It's funny to think of that happening in the in the 20th century. Is it? Was that a common occurrence? No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, the the only other time this century I've heard of books being burnt when the Satanic Verses was burnt. I can't think of a, an occasion before. I mean, books were obviously burnt by the Nazis, but we're talking here about 1915. And so he had to wait until the war was over before he could finally exile himself, which he did with joy and only ever came back to England reluctantly. Mm. And could we talk a bit more about um, the rainbow specifically? You mentioned that there are some uh, scenes in it where 
which which could have been considered obscene at the time. For example, I was quite interested by the lesbianism and, and you mentioned as well um, the scene between two women and you mentioned that this was actually legal at the time. It wasn't like a major objection. Um, mm. But I know that we're going to talk a bit later on about um, Lawrence's uh, specific attitudes towards homosexuality, but I thought maybe it would be a good opportunity to talk a bit about how he writes about women. And, yes. Um, I know that that's, uh, has been one of the sort of major charges against Lawrence over the mm. last, uh, well, since he died. Um, yes. How he treats women in, in his life and in his work. And I thought we could just talk about that for a bit. Yeah, that's it's very interesting. I think, again, this, this is why we have to talk about two Lawrences. Lawrence one, Lawrence two. Lawrence one wrote about women very, very sensitively and wonderfully, and women felt as if they had their spokesman. And Lawrence, too, was the mansplaining asshole who wrote about women in an extremely irritating and boring way. Now, Lawrence, too, didn't start writing about women until 1925. And I think Lawrence's representation of women in the early novels is, I think, absolutely beautiful, it's beautiful. He wrote about women from the inside and uh, and he managed to write about women from the inside with this amount of almost preternatural sensitivity because he was half woman himself. Mm. I mean, he was a very, very feminine man and a very feminine little boy who was very close to his mother and sisters and always played with girls. He identified with women and he drained them of information about what it was like being a woman. All of Lawrence's female friends said they were wrung out by how much he got out of them. He couldn't write a book without a woman behind him because that woman was his archive. She was his library of research. Now, he didn't do the same thing with men. So I would say that um, Lawrence's men are wooden and stereotypical because he idealised men. He had no idea what it was like to be uh, one of the men that he describes because he, he wasn't anything like that himself. He wasn't anything like a kind of gamekeeper or a kind of or a sort of um, a strong man kind of preaching to people. He was a he was tiny and weak, but he had a very good sense of what it was like to be a woman. And this came from his extremely unhealthy identification with his mother. Mm. And so when he was little, his, um, his mother kind of, like in a lot of unhappy marriages, the mother kind of sucked, his mother sucked him into her soul and um, told him everything about what it was like being her. And Lawrence suffered for her. Halfway through his life, he changed track, decided that his mother had been completely wrong and his full sympathy now lay with his father. And so at that point, the misogynist Lawrence comes into um, being. He starts kind of talking about um, macho men like his father as if um, they were you know, the most important people in the world and all aspirational women have to be crushed. But what he does in The Rainbow, which is a book he, he wrote when he was in a good state, and it was a book that he wrote when he was, when he was first in love with Frida, 
his um, his wife, is right about three generations of women who live in the part of the Midlands that he come, came from, the Nottingham, Derbyshire borders. And there are three generations of women from the same family, from the Brangwyn family. So starting off in the 19th century and ending up in the present day, ending up in 1915. And he talks about the sexual awakening of each generation. And he frames the novel inside this this realm of symbolism that Lawrence lived inside. So the rainbow itself is biblical. It's from it's from the Old Testament, obviously. It's Noah's rainbow. And it's, you know, there is hope. There is hope. But the, the novel reads like the Old Testament anyway. It's very biblical. He, he saw the Bible as a big, confused novel. And this novel is a big, confused Bible as far as, far as I can see. So I don't think you can make... I don't think that anyone can hurl accusations of misogyny at Lawrence here. And it does seem agonisingly unfair that a novel as as rare and as poised and as subtle and as sensitive and beautiful as this should have been bludgeoned to death in the way that it was. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah, how he was kind of forced into that position of being an outsider and then reacted to it in that way. Yeah, it's interesting to chart the rest of his his life um, from that point, definitely. I just wanted to talk as well a bit before we move on about um, Lawrence as the conscientious objector. He didn't fight in the war. What reaction did that get from his peers? Was it was it something that most people thought or his uh, social group thought was a noble thing to do or was it something that was seen as cowardly? Lawrence biographers have made too little of the fact that Lawrence couldn't fight in the war. And Lawrence, of course, made a big deal about being very anti this war. But he wasn't anti this war because he was anti-war. He was anti this war because he was anti modernity and he felt that this was a very modern war in which men were using machine guns and tanks and he felt that war should be bows and arrows and had this war been a little bit more kind of like a one of the wars in game of thrones or something he'd have been um he'd have been at home with it and so lawrence felt um agonized about not being part of the herd of men So we talked about the war as kind of the worst kind of herd mentality. But Lawrence believed deeply in brotherhood between men. He couldn't join a brotherhood of miners because he was too sickly. He also couldn't join a brotherhood of soldiers because he was too sickly. And so he couldn't really join any brotherhood. He was always left behind with the women. And I think this was incredibly humiliating and emasculating for him, especially for a man who, you know, believed in phallic power as much as Lawrence started to believe in it. So I think his... um, his position during the war was much, much more complicated than one of conscientious objection. But there was also the major problem with his having a German wife. Mm. Not only a German wife, but a German wife whose surname was um, von Richterfen and her, and her uncle was the Red Baron. So her uncle was the only fighter pilot who every English soldier had heard of. So she was kind of, so she was um, almost like a joke German wife to have. And, um, and she was cut off from her family during the war and Lawrence felt painfully aware of this. And he loved Germany and he loved German culture. And he could not, of course, once England had burnt his book, he couldn't stand behind England as a country of any decency at all. 
Yeah, it seems like such a dark moment in his life for so many different reasons. And I find your description of him feeling emasculated fascinating as well. I'm sure there's lots of to say there about how he writes about masculinity and femininity um, as well. But um, sadly, this is a history podcast. So <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> I've got to try and resist the urge to ask you lots of questions about that. In that case, would you like to uh, tell us what is the second scene that we're going to visit in 1915? Yes, so this is um, this is his the house that Lawrence lived in, in the Vale of Health. Now, the Vale of Health is at the top of Hampstead Heath. It's probably the weirdest area in London, and you can only get to it by walking down a very wooded path and then finding, you, then you find this area, which is, I think, and apologies to anyone listening who lives there, very very creepy and Lawrence lived in a house called um, Byron Villas which I think was very ironic because um, Byron also came the poet Byron also came from Nottingham and he also became a voluntary exile and a literary outlaw but Lawrence was someone who decided not to own a house he he didn't want to own anything he wanted to live live like a fox and hide in holes. And so he and his wife kind of toured the world, living in extraordinarily kind of threadbare conditions. And he lived in, in Byron Villas in Vale of Health just for, um, for a couple of months. And they were these very traumatic months. Now, all the houses that Lawrence lived in, I noticed, are at the top of hills. And this struck me as really, really intriguing. And so the the subtitle of this book is The Ascent of D.H. Lawrence. And this the subtitle was kind of born, really, of my fascination with his living at the top of Hampstead Heath and then realising that he lived at the top of everything. Now, I think Lawrence had a preternatural sense of place and a sense of space. His, uh, his life was as much a work of art as his writing. The identification that I um, believe he had with um, Dante in uh, Divine Comedy, that his life began in the Inferno, where his father was a coal miner, and all of his life he climbed higher and higher and higher until in the end Lawrence's ashes were um, were buried on a mountain called Lobo Mountain, Wolf Mountain, um, 8,000 feet above sea level in the Rockies. And so you can trace Lawrence's um, trajectory as one of direct ascent. I don't think he would ever have selected, chosen a house that was in a valley or a house that didn't have a view. The Vale of the House in the Vale of Health is really, I think, the start of his sense of himself as um, someone not only who's going to live outside the herd and throw bombs into it, but um, someone who doesn't actually belong to the human race. He belongs to a special species. Mm. Mm, I love the way you describe that. It's so interesting. And what a strange, well, it's not a coincidence, what an interesting pattern. I did actually visit the Vale of Health um, last weekend. Did you? Um, Yeah. (laughs) What did you think of it? Did you find it creepy? I did. And, you know, I hadn't thought to put that word to it. But when you said creepy, I thought, yes, actually, it is. It's because... I mean, I'm sure it was um, much, London was probably, that part of London was probably much quieter in 1915 than it is now, but it was still, it does, it feels apart from the rest of Hampstead. It feels very quiet and detached and um, yeah, like not like suddenly you're not in London anymore. Um, Yes. It's interesting. I wanted to ask you a bit about 
um, the London literary scene at this mm. time and how did Lawrence fit into it? Having, bearing in mind that you've just described how he felt very much apart from England, um, did he have a community of um, fellow writers or artists that he felt a part of in London at all? Well, Lawrence could never feel a part of any community, um, not only because he, he was Lawrence, but also because of his class. And so the London literary scene was entirely upper class. And it was kind of Ford, Maddox Ford and, and the Bloomsbury's. And of course, there was H.G. Wells, who was middle class. And that was important. So there were, there were middle class and lower middle class writers. But Lawrence was, um, was completely working class. And he was therefore seen, he was therefore deeply patronised by the literary scene. And he was incredibly aware of this. So there's an interesting anecdote example, told by Ford Maddox Ford, who um, who ran the magazine in which Lawrence's work was first published. Lawrence's poems were first published. And Ford Maddox Ford describes in his journal kind of waiting to meet Lawrence. He had no idea who this man was. You know, he'd received he'd received um, this this envelope full of these extraordinary poems and he said yes I have discovered a genius I've discovered a genius there's no doubt about it and he invited the genius to come and see him he got a sense of the fact that the genius was from the other side of the tracks and he said I felt you know it would be a bit embarrassing if um if Mr Lawrence kind of came into my office kind of tugging his forelock and what if he called me sir I'd have to say of course because um Ford Maddox Ford was a socialist I'd have to say oh no 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 don't call me sir don't call me sir you know call me Ford he said but none of it he looked up when Lawrence arrived he looked up and he said what he saw was not a forelock tugging ingenue but a fox he said it was a it was a fox leaning against the doorpost, a fox about to raid the hen coop, and that was such a good description of Lawrence as a kind of Lawrence having this kind of feral energy. And then he said he realised that this fox had read more deeply into the tedious literature of the 18th and 19th century than anyone he'd ever met. And then he started, Ford Maddox Ford, started parading Lawrence around the London literary scene where Lawrence was treated as a fetish. Now, most of the people who spoke to Lawrence, take, for example, the, um, the Bloomsbury's, had never spoken to a working class man in their life before. They'd never met one. You know, they'd ne- you know they, had, they had servants, but you didn't speak to your servant. You spoke, you know, through your housekeeper or butler. And um, you certainly didn't speak as an equal. And so they didn't know how to address Lawrence. And Lawrence had certainly never spoken to anyone outside his class either. And he was completely fed up of being patronised. And so when we, when we note in Lawrence's fiction as we do that almost everyone who helped Lawrence on his way to becoming a writer like Lady Ottoline Morell when we see that they are sent up in an appalling way in his novels and people say god how could Lawrence have been so so cruel to Ottoline after all she did to him it's because um he couldn't stand having to be grateful and you could hear that Lawrence could move between two voices. He could speak the dialect of his childhood, but he could also speak what he called the King's English. But um, you know that he had an accent. And when he got angry, the dialect 
came out. So, so he would never fit in. It, we would never fit in. That class structure kind of started to vanish after the First World War. But when we're thinking about Lawrence now in 1915, there is an entrenched class structure and Lawrence is on the outside of it, it's, as well as being on the outside of, um, of these groups of men that he's been raised amongst. He doesn't belong anywhere. Mm, so extremely isolating. Yes, Um that leads me on actually to the next question that I wanted to ask you about is about his marriage with Frida, who was presumably one of the only people he had in London who he could uh, confide in and feel not so isolated with. Uh, you've told us a bit already about what she's like, but could you tell me a bit more what was what was her what was her personality and what was her marriage to Lawrence like? Oh God! Well, Frida was um, Frida was something else. I can tell you. So Frida was five years older than Lawrence, and she was, as I said, German. When when Lawrence met her, she was married already to um, to Lawrence's professor, Lawrence's uh, professor at Nottingham University. See, so he was no longer Lawrence's professor, but Professor Ernest Weekly had taught. Lawrence. And so Lawrence met Frida because he went to see his professor for Sunday lunch to talk to him about getting a reference to go and um, teach at a university in Germany. He, it took him and Frida, it took Lawrence and Frida 30 minutes to decide that they were going to spend the rest of their lives together, apparently. So Frida answered the door to Lawrence from this suburban house. And so this woman, this German woman with this beautiful face and this huge bosom and blonde hair opened the door to Lawrence and he could not believe it. Here was his muse. Now she had... Um, she had many things in her favour, one of which was that she was married already. And it was important for Lawrence as the kind of the Oedipal son to cuckold his father. And so the taking the wife away from his the father, the father figure, his tutor at university, was important to him. And it was also important to Lawrence that he separate Frida from her children. And now Lawrence was fantastically cruel about this, but he believed powerfully that children had to be separated um, from their mothers as early as possible. And I think because his separation from his mother had taken so long. And so he showed Frida no sympathy at all, but she lost her children in running off with Lawrence and she um, and she never stopped grieving them. What she gave up for Lawrence was uh, a suburb the life of a suburban housewife that she loathed. And she ran off with a genius, which is what she wanted to do. But she also believed very much that she was a genius, you know, that Lawrence shouldn't take all the credit for genius and that she had turned Lawrence into the incendiary writer that he became because she was his muse and she represented the sexual woman that he was desperate to kind of write about from the inside because Frida had also been leading a double life. So every year... Before she met Lawrence, every year Frieda had gone back to Germany to see her sister. And in Germany, she mixed with a kind of bohemian set of people who were interested in free love. And she'd had a number of lovers there who saw her as the most extreme of them all. Frieda was freedom itself. And so and her husband knew nothing about this. And so when she when she took on Lawrence. She was just kind of slipping into her hidden life, if you like. But Frida, Frida kind of, Frida teamed up with Lawrence and spent her life wandering the world with him. Lawrence's friends absolutely hated her because they said she was, all she thought about was sex. She was absolutely brain dead, mindless. All she thought about was sex. But for Lawrence, that was, that was his type. You know, he lived in, he needed opposites. You know, she was like his father, if you like. She was all body 
and she was illiterate and all body and only thought about sex and she was nice and fat and Lawrence was like his mother he was thin and wiry and puritanical and he represented mind and so he had one model of marriage and it was a war and he reconstructed that with Frida so he and Frida had fantastic rows that all of their friends commented on you know where Frida would say something to Lawrence like I don't think Shelley's poem to a skylark is any good. And he'd go, what do you know about it, you stupid fool? And then they'd be rolling around on the ground. He'd be punching her and punching her. And she'd burst out crying and say, I'm leaving you. I can't stand you. And he'd say, the sooner the better. And then half an hour later, they'd be reminiscing about a particularly delicious macaroni cheese. (laughs) they'd enjoyed and it was all over but they only had these fights in front of people like a lot of couples you know they save their theatre for the audience and when they were on their own they probably muddled along quite happily and so Frida was Frida was a hard person to um for a hard person for us to understand because I think you had to have been there to see her effect on Lawrence. The only the only aspects of Frida that should interest Lawrence's biographer are uh, those that interested Lawrence. You know, as far as Lawrence was concerned, Frida was everything. He lost when when Frida left the room. He felt as if he was disappearing. He it was very very codependent. He couldn't be without her. He was utterly faithful to her, except for one little transgression where he tried to be unfaithful to her because they believed in free love. But he found it really hard. Frida was unfaithful to him all the time, including on their honeymoon, and Lawrence couldn't complain about it because, of course, Frida was freedom itself, and so he didn't want to be bourgeois. You know, they were. And so, but inside, I mean, when, as Lawrence became more and more misogynist, you have to take on board the fact that he had no power over his wife. His wife was a force of nature. And so as he, the more he invested in this cliche of the strong man and the woman brought to heel, it was a fantasy. It was the opposite of his reality. I can't quite decide if um, if we're there um, in 1915 at their house in the Vale of Health, if it would be a fun uh, experience if we went for tea or if it would be a kind of no. terrifying one. <laughs> Everyone said, and there are accounts of tea parties that they had in 1915 where the Bloomsbury group turned up. They said Lawrence was absolutely shaken. Lawrence was miserable. Frida was trying to trying to keep it together, but she was miserable because she missed her children so much. And most people said be, being in their society was was agony. <laughs> so it would be interesting. It would be interesting. Maybe we'd want to be flies on the walls rather than actually there, sat around the table with them. Absolutely, maybe. yes. Hello. At Travels Through Time, we're incredibly proud to be partnering with Jordan Lloyd and Colourgraph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colourgraph.co. At colourgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colourisation work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colourised photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, 
you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. Would you like to take us to our third and final scene? We're actually going back in time a bit here, I think, yes, aren't we? Yes, we're going to earlier in the year. So this is March 1915, rather than the autumn of 1915. So this is Lawrence six months before the rainbow is banned and burnt. And this is Lawrence just after he's finished the rainbow. And this takes us into Lawrence in literary society, if you like. So you were asking me about how Lawrence got on with, with the Edwardian um, writers. Well, this is Lawrence among the academics. So Lawrence Lawrence is invited to Cambridge by Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell is the lover of Ottiline Morel, who has been Lawrence's kind of patroness. So Lawrence is invited to Cambridge to have supper at high table with Bertrand Russell. Quite a scene here, you know, the son of a coal miner rolling up at a Cambridge college. And again, you get Lawrence kind of moving into a world of men. So the world that he kind of fantasises about. These Obviously, the Cambridge colleges were only for men. And this was a kind of monastic setup of the kind he idolised, where a lot of men lived together as equals and, and lived an intellectual life. It was fascinating for Lawrence. And he was very, very nervous about going and he wanted to be seen to hold his own he didn't want to make a fool of himself he did very well at high table apparently you know he he, he managed to hold his own and um and all the uh, the dons thought he was marvelous they all described him as as a real man that's what a real man looks like and you have to take by that description what they meant was um and Lawrence obviously wasn't anything like a real man he had a very high voice he had a screechy laugh he seemed to be very effete what they meant was a working class man this was what a working man looked like and so this is um Lawrence again being completely sort of made into an outsider now the next day so he stays the night in Trinity College and the next morning he's taken by by Bertrand Russell to go and see Maynard Keynes the economist Maynard Keynes they're waiting in Keynes's room and Keynes is nowhere to be seen and suddenly Keynes emerges from his bedroom He's been in bed. He emerges in his pyjamas. And what we know about this is what Lawrence put in a letter. He said, Keynes emerged from his bedroom and he described himself as having a complete meltdown. He said what he saw horrified him, horrified him. And he felt a madness coming on. And the, uh, and the madness had stayed ever since. And he fled Cambridge and he went to bed for, um, for the next couple of weeks in a fever. Now, what he'd obviously seen was something... He'd seen something homosexual. He'd seen something Keynes was bisexual. He'd seen maybe Keynes had an, a man in the bedroom. Maybe Keynes came out naked. Lawrence doesn't say what he saw. But what he did see was just utterly, utterly destructive to him. At the same time, it's an odd scene because, Je because Lawrence was so fascinated by homosexuality and he had already described in his novels scenes of men naked bathing, drying each other's backs and he talked mm. about the beautiful intimacy between men and the fellowship between men and he loved the way that his father worked naked in the pit with other men and um, the physical closeness and so this again was Lawrence 1 and Lawrence 2 you know this the, the homosexuality that he actually had a deep respect for when he was face to face with it 
he completely fell to pieces. And this is what we find with Lawrence all the time, that he's in conflict with himself. So I just think, I think that's a very, I think it's a, a scene that could be in a film. It's so complex. Lawrence the Collier's son in Cambridge confronting Bloomsbury homosexuality. So that's the scene I mm. thought I'd leave you with. Yes, no, definitely. And and you kind of want to be there to see what he saw. Yes, what <laughs> was it? This, <laughs> yeah, a slight mystery to it. Um, I just wanted to talk a bit about um, the snobbishness of uh, Lawrence's contemporaries to him. I know we spoke about it a bit already, but... Um, when I was doing um, my research for this interview, I came across one um, person who had the opinion that uh, D.H. Lawrence was taught as part of the school curriculum quite naturally in the 60s and 70s. And that has and that fell away and definitely isn't the case anymore or certainly wasn't the case at my school. And this person was of the belief that the reason this had happened was because in the 60s and 70s as a nation, we were much more interested in working class writers than we yes. later became. And that Lawrence is part of this heritage of working class writers in this country that we we now or perhaps later in the 20th century didn't take as much interest in. And I just wanted to ask you a bit about that and what you what you made of that. And about Lawrence as a working class writer and the effect that it, the huge, as you've outlined already, effect that it had on his career. Yes. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, Ford Maddox Ford, who, as I said, discovered Lawrence, wanted him to be a working class writer. And he told him um, to stop writing about middle class things, to stop writing pastoral novels in the manner of um, Thomas Hardy, to stop writing about men going swimming and drying each other's backs, and to take us to the inside of a collier's house, to write in dialect, to be the representative of the working classes. And Lawrence was very averse to this. He didn't, this is not the kind of writing he wanted to do at all. But he did then start writing working class short stories. And of course, there was Women in Love, where he took us right into the heart of a, of a, of a, a collier's life. But this was, he had one hand behind his back doing this. I mean, he was kind of, um, he was made to do this writing. He wanted to get away. I mean, we all want to get away from our class. You know, Lawrence, more than anyone, he didn't want to be identified with his class. He wanted to be seen as a kind of, um, you know, a, um, a world writer, someone who exceeded all boundaries. So this was this was very irritating to him. But before, before he met Ford Maddox Ford, he had written a series of which were, he was very young when he wrote these plays. He was in his early 20s and they were plays written in dialect and set in set in miners' cottages. And these plays are so good. They are occasionally staged by people like Richard Eyre. They're staged at the National. And audiences come away gasping, saying, I had no idea, had no idea that this was also D.H. Lawrence. But what these plays anticipate are the angry young men, dramas and novels of the 50s and 60s. But, But this was kind of... 50 years before because what Lawrence has is the kind of um the the young man coming of age in his father's house you know fighting with his father and trying to break free of the bonds of his mother and reading um Swinburne and talking about Shostakovich and Sophocles and his father going yeah but where's my tea and drinking his tea out of the saucer whatever so Lawrence had even before he was shaped to become a working class writer produced these plays from the 
belly of his being and written them in dialect. And so if this is a Lawrence we don't know, and it's a shame it's a Lawrence we don't know, because if we put these plays at the centre of his canon, we'd see that Lawrence anticipated the working class writing of the period you're talking about. Mm. I was just kind of, I was thinking about it in your description because there's something very visual. I'm picturing him sat at this high table in Cambridge, just surrounded by lots of um, men who he has very little in common with, lots of upper class men at Cambridge. It's just, um, it's a very striking image and you can imagine how intimidating it might have felt for him. Yes. Um, Yeah. And you mentioned that he experiences a little madness after this scene at Cambridge and he has, is it a nervous breakdown or? Well, I don't, if it's a nervous breakdown, it's, I think it's the first stage of the quite long nervous breakdown that took place over 1915. And so Mm. Lawrence starts to go, that whole year he's mad. So by the time we have to, again, think this is what happened six months before the rainbow. And so things have already started to kind of stir up in his mind. He started to become paranoid and um, and frightened and to feel very threatened. And then his novel is destroyed. And so I think, yes, he has a slow nervous breakdown. And by the time he actually leaves London at the end of 1915, when he and his wife go and live in Cornwall for a year, he's actually not well at all. He's not well mm. at all. And what happens uh, next in in uh, Lawrence's life I know that we um we have to sort of stay within the confines of 1915 because that's where we've traveled back in time to but does he ever manage to recover self one that softer more sensitive side or is it um is the damage of 1915 does that last for the rest of his it, life it lasts forever he self one comes out in his poetry Lawrence's poetry is just extraordinary, especially the the poems about animals are so incredible. He was it was Lawrence who first used the term otherness. And he writes about the otherness of animals, just with, with again, I use the word again, this preternatural sense of what it is like to be outside his own self and in another consciousness. And that's where we see self one. But otherwise, the writing becomes more and more ranting and more and more deliberately provocative. And so, you know, if I'm going to be... Um, if I'm going to be cancelled, give them some reason to cancel me. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's funny you should mention that word because I was when I was talking to a friend about um, doing this interview today, they were saying uh, he's somebody, Lawrence is a figure that sits so uneasily in the 21st century. And maybe it's for that exact reason that we wouldn't know how, what to make of um, a character like him yes. nowadays. Well, um, that's been a fascinating journey through a really turbulent year in a great writer's life. And before we head back to the present, as it were, you are allowed to bring one memento with you from 1915 um, to sort of treasure and remember it by. So my question to you is, if you could bring back one memento from 1915, what would you bring? A first edition of The Rainbow, snatched out of the flames. Mm. That's what I'd have, of course. Of course. <laughs> It'd probably be worth a huge amount of money, though. I'm sure that's not the main <laughs> main reason you'd well, want to have it. it's not an unattractive side to it. <laughs> No, I like that a lot. That's perfect. Well, um, Francis, thank you so much for joining us on Travels Through Time. I really enjoyed that. Me too. Thanks so much for letting me indulge myself. That was me, Artemis Irvin, talking to Francis Wilson about the year 1915 and her latest biography, Burning Man, The Ascent of D.H. Lawrence. 
It's published by Bloomsbury Circus and is available to buy from the 27th of May. I hope our conversation has inspired you to go read it or to go and read some of Lawrence's own work. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>